Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, joins us to discuss the Palestinian election disaster. Dr. Shanzer will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dr. Jonathan Shanzer. Thank you, Stacy, and uh, really uh, great to be with everybody uh, again. I think I was uh, on one of these uh, maybe about a year ago at the beginning of the pandemic. Hopefully, this will be my last one over video because of pandemic reasons at any rate. Um, but uh, yes, I'm, I'm here today to talk about the, uh, the, the current uh, mess uh, stemming from the announcement uh, to hold Palestinian elections and uh, uh, perhaps uh, just a little bit of analysis at the end about where we may go next. Uh, but just by way of background, the, the crisis actually really began some 14 years ago uh, with the decision by the Bush administration to allow for Palestinian elections uh, in 2006. All the polls indicated that the Fatah party, the pragmatic or less violent uh, uh, faction would win. Uh, this according to the polls that were taken at the time. Uh, and uh, what we found on the day after the election was that Hamas uh, won by a, uh, a small majority uh, and ultimately was empowered to create a, uh, a new government. This of course was something that the Israelis in the United States uh, refused to see happen. And there was great pressure placed on uh, then the new Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, and um, what resulted was a uh, decision by Abbas to dig in and not to allow Hamas to form a government. This prompted Hamas to launch a war in 2007. This was a war that led to hundreds of Palestinians being killed, people being pushed off of tall buildings to their death, shot in legs and arms to ensure permanent disability. Of course, this didn't get a lot of attention back then, uh, still doesn't get a lot of attention today, but the end result was that, of course, we had the separation of the Palestinian territories, uh, West Bankistan and Hamasistan, if you will, um, and uh, the PLO and Hamas clinging to their uh, respective territories while engaging in a war of words. Um, and uh, this was a stalemate that has ensued for the last uh, decade and a half. Uh, that stalemate has been attempted to be um, uh, solved by a range of actors, whether it was the Saudis, the Turks, the Egyptians. Um, there were a range of actors that tried to negotiate what was then called reconciliation between the Hamas and Fatah factions. That went nowhere. Then suddenly uh, in September of last year, we saw the announcement uh, by Mahmoud Abbas that there would be new Palestinian elections. I didn't give it much thought at the time. I didn't think that it would be any different than all the other false starts that we saw coming out of the Palestinians over that previous decade and a half. Uh, but the one thing that I think made it different was the fact that it came right after the Abraham Accords, after the, the uh, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain uh, uh, normalized their relations with Israel. And I think there was a sense among Palestinians, a sense of panic uh, that uh, perhaps because they were unable to unified because they had not been able to speak in one voice as a uh, Palestinian nationalist movement for the last decade and a half, that they were beginning to feel uh, uh, perhaps some pressure that their cause was being left behind, 
and that they needed to come together and to reunify or to reconcile. Uh, so we saw that back in September. Again, I didn't give it much thought given all the many other failures that we had seen before. But then after the loss at the polls by President Donald Trump in the election of Joe Biden, there was even more uh, uh, announcements, additional action. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that under the Trump administration, the Palestinians had been very marginalized. They did not feel like they were getting significant access to this administration. And with the, uh, with the prospect of a new president coming in that might be more amenable to supporting the Palestinian cause, there was a sense that perhaps coming together now would make more sense. And again, holding these elections would help legitimize the Palestinian government. Now, um, there was a problem, of course, in all of this, and that was that Hamas was going to be taking part in these elections. Um, Hamas is, of course, a recognized terrorist organization here in the United States, designated by both the State Department and the Treasury with their respective powers. And there are, there are pieces of legislation in place that would bar American funding to the Palestinians if there is Hamas participation in their governments. So it, it stood to reason that the United States would um, uh, do uh, whatever it could to prevent this from happening if in fact the goal of the Biden administration was to continue to fund the Palestinians. But instead we saw from the Biden administration very early on that there was a decision to not oppose Hamas participation. This was shocking to me, given the fact that uh, the President Biden himself in 2006 uh, authored the Palestine, uh, Palestinian Anti-Terrorism Act, PATA. Uh, this was legislation that he up to spearhead when he was in the Senate that would prevent any funds from going to a government in which Hamas would benefit in any way. And so you'd think that the administration would have stood against this. That is not what happened. Instead, what we saw was messaging coming out of primarily the State Department saying that the US government, the United States government has no um, uh, ability to stop these elections, that it is up to every um, uh, population or every state uh, to be able to hold elections should they wish to do so. Um, in fact, what we were hearing from the administration was we have our own problems in our own democracy, so far be it from us to tell others how to conduct their democracy. Of course, uh, the Palestinians don't have a democracy. Mahmoud Abbas has been in power since 2005. He is now 16 years into a four-year term. He is a strong man in every sense of the word. And some of that, by the way, has to do with the fact that the West has asked him to be a strong man to prevent Hamas from gaining power. That said, I believe that he has become extremely corrupt, and I've written about this, and in fact, uh, had to deal with some lawsuits as a result of this. Uh, but at any rate, you have uh, Abbas, who has refused to allow for, po for political participation uh, up until now. Then he lets Hamas in, creating a whole new set of problems. Um, now, there was actually a lot of questions about why Israel was uh, rather quiet about this as the Palestinians began to make noise about new elections, including Hamas. What I heard from Israelis was that uh, they did not want to get involved in this, particularly in the lead up to their own election, that the optics of this would not be particularly nice for the Israelis if they were to oppose elections in the Palestinian territories while holding elections for themselves on March 23rd. There was also, I think, the calculation on the part of Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, 
that he did not want the Palestinian narrative to creep into the election debate. And I think this was probably for good reason. We've not seen the Palestinians appear in the last four election debates. They have not been a major component of the political discussion. And I think uh, uh, Bibi wanted to keep it that way. So he kept quiet. Uh, but of course, after the election, after uh, March 23rd, the Israelis did begin to engage and began to warn the Palestinians that holding an election with Hamas would be disastrous. You had the head of the Shin Bet go to the head of uh, security in the West Bank. They had a conversation about it, uh, but uh, the Shin Bet head was rebuffed. Uh, then you had uh, um, uh, a, a call that, that was directly from, um, from Bibi to Abbas, uh, and he was, of course, rebuffed again. So Abbas decided that he was going to be moving forward with this uh, regardless. And um, the, the concerns that were coming out of Israel and then increasingly from the US after that initial silence was that Hamas would have a role to play no matter what the end result was in, in, uh, uh, in the election. Uh, the polls were showing that uh, Fatah was likely to win by a small margin, let's say 43% to 38%, somewhere thereabouts. Of course, the polling is notoriously off um, and it's unclear whether the, the polling would bear out in reality. Um, but the fact is, is that Hamas was likely to gain um, at least a, a significant minority of the seats, uh, if not win out entirely. Um, this has to do um, primarily with the fact that the Palestinians changed their election laws so that uh, you didn't have these sort of regional areas um, that, what, that used to be sort of gerrymandered, where uh, if Hamas lost to Fatah, um, even if it was 51 to 49%, the Fatah figures would emerge in that specific area. They moved to a more national um, model, which means that Hamas would get the proportion of the votes that it won, uh, which would mean absolutely a gain for Hamas seats. And so this was a major concern uh, and so you began to finally see uh, the United States warning of the possible consequences of Hamas elections without saying, don't do it. They were saying, look, we're concerned and you should be aware of the fact that you could see a cutoff in funding. The Israelis continue to, to voice their concerns. And now you begin to see the PA finally beginning to back down. Last week, maybe for about the last week and a half, the PA began to backtrack. They are calling um, for the postponement of their elections now because they are saying that Israel is not going to allow for a full Palestinian authority vote in East Jerusalem. This is disingenuous at best. In 2006, the Israelis did allow for a mechanism that enabled Palestinians to vote in Jerusalem, uh, despite the fact that there is a disagreement on who actually controls this particular part of the city. Uh, but regardless, um, it looks now that the Palestinians are going to backtrack, they're going to try to hang this around the Israelis, blame the Israelis for intransigence over Jerusalem, um, and this will be the way they climb down from the ladder, so to speak. But I don't believe uh, that the problems are over. I don't believe that this is a crisis averted. I think the fact that Mahmoud Abbas, as I mentioned, he's a strong man, um, he has not allowed for political participation in the West Bank for quite some time. Now, all of a sudden, you have a number of political lists that have emerged, people that declared their intent 
to run against Mahmoud Abbas and his Fatah party in the West Bank. And so you have people like Marwan Barghouti and his uh, group, you have Mohammed Dahlan and his group, you've got Nasser al-Kidwa, who's the nephew of uh, Yasser Arafat. He is now um, uh, declaring his own list. You have Salam Fayyad, the former prime minister, also talking about uh, having a list run. So you have all of these people who are now taking part in the Palestinian political debate, and that was not happening even a few months ago. And it is unclear to me how Mahmoud Abbas will be able to quash these political debates. These are debates that he did not want to have happen. Um, he wanted full control over the political discussion in the West Bank. So now it, it, there's an open question of whether uh, there are going to be additional challenges to Mahmoud Abbas's rule. In addition to that, I would just say that we have the possibility of a Hamas-Fatah conflict being renewed. Hamas was offered an opportunity to take part in the political system. This moved forward for roughly five or six or seven months uh, where they uh, were assured that they would be taking part in a new political process. That has now been scuttled unilaterally by Mahmoud Abbas and one can imagine that they are none too pleased about it. So it'll be important to watch the continuation or the possible continuation of the internecine conflict uh, that we have documented for so many years between Hamas and Fatah, whether this turns into another hot conflict, one does not know. And then there's finally the question of whether Hamas will begin to vent its frustration against Israel. There are, of course, uh, reports coming out of Jerusalem and other parts of Israel right now that there are, um, uh, there are acts of violence that are taking place between Arabs and Jews. Uh, it's unclear whether Hamas is stoking this or not, but there is talk of a possible third intifada, and uh, one could certainly imagine that Hamas could use its frustration over this election mess to uh, try to galvanize support. So it's unclear whether we're heading into a third intifada or not, whether we're heading into a new uh, phase of the internecine conflict, or whether we are heading into a new political phase in the West Bank. One thing that we can begin to think about, though, is whether we want to start to push Mahmoud Abbas to plan for his own retirement. That might be a policy that the US government should consider. Uh, the other thing is, of course, perhaps a half step in that direction, which would be pushing Mahmoud Abbas uh, to name a successor so that if, in fact, there is chaos or he is pushed out or if he has to leave because of ill health or if, in fact, he dies, that there would be someone there to help steer the ship um, and to uh, avoid some of the chaos that could still be on the horizon. But this is my brief summary uh, in 15 minutes or so of uh, what's been happening as a result of these planned elections. This was an unforced error on the part of the United States. We could have very easily uh, dissuaded the Palestinians from holding this vote, um, uh, citing very legitimate claims about the participation of a terrorist group. We did not do that. The US government has allowed this to limp on. And now I believe we could be on the precipice of at least uh, uh, one of three different crises, maybe all of them all at once. Uh, again, an unforced error, unfortunately, on the part of this administration early on in its Middle Eastern foreign policy. So with that, I'll close, trying to stick to these 15 minutes and um, happy to answer any questions you might have. All right, thank you so much. The first question we have in is regarding your last point with Abbas, um, is rumored to be in failing health. Can you talk a little further about the implications of his impending incapacity or death for the future of the West Bank? 
Absolutely. So, you know, Mahmoud Abbas has been in poor health for, for quite some time. He's had high blood pressure. He's reported to have had a couple of heart attacks. Uh, up until a couple of years ago, he was uh, still smoking heavily, now reportedly vaping, if that makes it any healthier. Uh, who knows? Um, we hear that he continues to lose energy, that he's uh, not um, uh, alert during uh, meetings and speeches and the like. Uh, he's been caught on, recently caught on uh, hot mic, uh, slamming the United States and other Arab countries, as well as China. Um, he just does not seem to be as careful uh, as he has in the past. All of this pointing to the fact that he just may not be up for the job, um, you know, in, in maybe ways that he was 10 or 15 years ago. So there are there are real concerns about that. My, my, my primary concern really is that uh, the, the current succession is uh, one that is a recipe for disaster. We're still working on the last uh, Pal uh, Palestinian Legislative Council. The, the results from that led to the Hamas victory. And if you look at Palestinian basic law, it stipulates that in the event of a succession crisis, if Mahmoud Abbas were incapacitated or, uh, or if he died, you would see the head, uh, the, the Speaker of Parliament, of, uh, of the Speaker of the PLC, uh, take over in, in, the, in that capacity for 60 days. Um, the head of the Palestinian Legislative Council from back then is Aziz Dwek, a member of Hamas. So you could have a situation where Hamas would take over for a short period of time until elections are held. Um, that's, of course, not exactly a, a recipe for stability. Um, and then there's the broader question. Let's say they decide not to go with uh, Palestinian basic law, but they go with the precedent of what was set last time after uh, Yasser Arafat passed away. Um, what they did is they held a kind of a conclave within the PLO. They named a new PLO uh, chief, and that was Mahmoud Abbas, but they did it by sort of secret ballot. They did it quietly among the executive committee. Um, there are big questions now about uh, who would be suitable to the Palestinian people, whether are, there are leaders who could step in and fill the void. Um, there are not a lot of recognizable names that are legitimate here in the United States, let alone in the West Bank, where the PA is seen as in incredibly corrupt. So there are a lot of questions that I think linger right now about succession. None of the, the possibilities look particularly good. And that's why I think uh, I'll just note here that the idea of postponing these elections indefinitely, which is what it looks like the Palestinians are doing now, I don't think that's the right move. What we really should be doing is looking to postpone them for six months, eight months, a year, whatever the amount of time is necessary in order to iron out a new system that are, where the Palestinians could be comfortable with uh, you know, a new election or with um, the succession as stipulated by Palestinian basic law. Right now, it all feels very seat of, uh, you know, seat of the pants and um, that's where mistakes can be made and crises can, of course, evolve. Thank you. So if the US was wrong to green light Palestinian elections now, under what conditions should the US support new elections? Uh, shouldn't the US want to see elections after so many years? I, look, I think the US should, but you know what the Biden administration was about to do was to commit the same sin as the George W. Bush administration, which is to not create guardrails to prevent the participation of Hamas, which would then trigger laws that would cut off American funding and probably trigger a crisis with the Israelis. So it's one thing to have Islamists running independently when they're not affiliated directly with Hamas, 
But if they are affiliated with Hamas, then what you have is the participation of a terrorist group in, a, in an election, which is something that the US government can't afford to support. One of the things that I uh, have long advocated for is to try to find a third party that is willing to uh, try to negotiate between Hamas and Fatah uh, to try to bring an end to the internecine conflict, to be able to find a mechanism that would allow the Palestinians to settle upon a single voice to represent both territories uh, and to be able to move past this. I still contend that the Palestinian political crisis is the first stumbling block to all of the other stumbling blocks that await us afterwards. In other words, if you're trying to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, if you're trying to solve the issue of Jerusalem or borders or settlements or anything else, you first have to know who the legitimate interlocutor is on the Palestinian side. We don't have that. And as long as that remains, we are going to be in a state of limbo and crisis. So my, 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 my first order of business would be to try to find a third party. The United States can't do it because we cannot negotiate directly with Hamas, but we could find someone else to negotiate on our behalf, on behalf of the international community. It's happened many times in the past. The US can be um, involved from the sidelines indirectly and in trying to guide that process but that's the only way we begin to move forward. And up until now, we have seen nothing but failure in this regard. So with the additional lists that are joining the political arena, uh, which party would be most likely to work with the Israelis in the US? Do any of these have a chance to win? Well, I think that you know the two primary parties will remain the, the main Fatah party and Hamas. And of course, Hamas would not work with the United States the PA would, there are questions of whether we should be paying the Palestinian Authority um, and the Fatah party that runs it, given the fact that we still have major concerns about pay for slay and Taylor Force Act related activities. So there's that there. I think there are questions though about whether, um, you know, uh, Nasser al-Kidwa, uh, who I mentioned is this uh, the former nephew or the nephew of the former uh, Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat, uh, he's opposed to Mahmoud Abbas and in particular has been opposed to his uh, autocratic and corrupt style. Um, he could be someone that we could work with in the future. Um, there's also uh, Salam Fayyad, the former prime minister who's looking to stand up his own list. Um, he's been based here in the United States at Princeton, uh, but I think I would welcome his return. This was a man who was deeply committed to reform and counter corruption. So this is someone that we could work with. Uh, you know, the, the Mohammed Dahlan group, it's unclear. This is a man that is not exactly a Democrat, to put it mildly. Um, although he has good connections with the CIA and with a, a, a number of former governments here in the United States. So I think there's a question mark as to whether he'd be the right person. He is backed by the United Arab Emirates, which of course is a valued ally here for the United States. Uh, so that could be an interesting dynamic, although I think it's largely a moot point at this point. Um, and then we have Marwan Barghouti, which I think should be a non-starter. This is, of course, the, uh, the Palestinian figure that's been languishing in an Israeli jail since the, um, the waning days of the Second Intifada. He's serving multiple life sentences for terrorist activities that he helped plan uh, through the violent faction of the Fatah party. So uh, I think he would be a non-starter. But there are people that could work with the United States. Of course, Abbas himself has worked with the United States. I think most of these actors could probably find a, work, a way of working with the Israelis, but none of them really, I think, are ideal until we begin to solve the problem of who speaks for the Palestinians in one voice. Otherwise, 
the West Bank and the Gaza Strip remain divided, the Palestinians remain divided, and the, legitimacy, the legitimacy crisis continues. Thank you. And just for clarification, did the PATA bill become law? And would that tie the government's hands in the event of a Hamas electoral victory? Yes, yes and yes. Uh, this is a law that is now in place and that basically any, um, any government or any instrumentality that goes to benefit Hamas in any way would trigger a cutoff in American funding. And again, this was a bill that was spearheaded by then Senator Biden, who is now in conflict with President Biden, which is an interesting uh, dynamic. Of course, the, um, the administration hasn't taken a, um, a strident position on these elections, but the fact that they would give a even a, a, a tacit green light to Hamas participation, even with the warnings that they have delivered, where they said that they're, you know, that the Palestinians need to be aware of the possible triggering of a of a cut of a funding cutoff, that this is a um, that that this is even still a possibility uh, for a president that spearheaded this legislation is is really just um, very confusing, um, I think, to the Palestinians, let alone to the international community. So along those lines, was Biden's decision to allow Hamas to run in the Palestinian elections his alone, or is he being influenced by others? I don't know. I mean, I don't think the president himself has uh, has issued um, anything directly on this. Uh, I think that the person who is probably out front um, in, in this regard is Hadi Amr, the Deputy Assistant Sec Secretary of State, um, uh, who is in charge of the Palestinian-Israeli uh, issue. Um, you know, he, I think, has been the person who's largely spearheaded some of the return of funding, uh, not directly to the Palestinian Authority, but to uh, entities that would be in support of the Palestinians. As you've probably heard, you have uh, some COVID-19 funding that's been authorized by the State Department, as well as uh, some other funding that will go to USAID for various projects that would benefit the Palestinians. Um, as well as a small allocation for peace building initiatives between Palestinians and Israelis. There's of course also going to be some um, renewed funding to UNRWA, uh, the U UN Relief and Works Agency, the uh, so-called refugee agency for the Palestinians. This is all money that um, would not go directly to the Palestinians, uh, but it appears to be getting a green light from uh, the State Department. This has been really where the bulk of the activity has come from. Uh, with regard to engaging with the Palestinians, funding-wise, policy-wise, uh, elections-wise, all of the above. Thank you. And another question is, are Biden and Blinken's advisors on Israel and the Palestinians setting their own agenda based on misconceptions of the conflict, or is there any opportunity to influence them? Um, you know, right now, I would say that because the Israelis uh, have been utterly consumed with the Iran issue primarily and perhaps secondarily uh, dealing with uh, military issues in Syria and the ongoing, what we would call the war between wars with Israeli strikes that are taking place uh, primarily in Syria. This really does appear to be the thing that is uh, consuming Israelis. And so you just don't see a lot of Israeli voices pushing back on the question of Palestinian policy. It has been something of a backwater for a number of years, certainly made so by Trump. I think there is an indication coming from the Biden administration that they would like to give the Palestinian portfolio more weight 
Um, I don't know who is driving that, if it's Hadi Amr himself or if there are others within the White House uh, that are also looking to do this. Uh, but certainly one does get a sense that the you know, so-called progressive wing of the Democratic Party is all in favor uh, of this kind of policy. And I think we'll have to wait and see uh, who else emerges as powerful figures in the Palestinian-Israeli portfolio. But right now, as I said, Hadi Amir primarily, the Iran team seems to be working independently uh, of the Palestinian issue. And you don't see a lot, at least right now, during the Biden or the Obama years, we saw a lot of discussion about linkage, um, you know, where you link some of the other uh, crises that were going on around the Middle East to the Palestinian-Israeli issue. I think the Abraham Accords really did, did disabuse a lot of people of that linkage theory, but yet we are still seeing, um, you know, a, a sign of trying to re-engage with the Palestinians, uh, irrespective of what's been happening on the Abraham Accords front. Wonderful, thank you so much. And in our last minute here, can you just tell us a little more about where to find some of your work? Absolutely. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the history uh, of this conflict, you can find my book on Amazon. It's Hamas versus Fatah, the struggle for Palestine. I also have another book called State of Failure, uh, Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Abbas and the Unmaking of the Palestinian State, uh, which really documents the corruption under Mahmoud Abbas since becoming uh, president in 2005, as I described, he really has evolved into a full-on strongman. You can also find my work at Jay Shanzer on Twitter. And um, I've written quite a bit for the Middle East Forum over the years, so you can find some of my previous work there. All right, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Shanzer, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. For our view. Of course. Uh, for our viewers and listeners, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an update with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.